How is it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Amos Gewurz, who is the co-founder and CEO of Carve. Amos, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, I am very excited when I saw Carve, I, I was interested. I think it's an interesting category. Um, so let's kind of just dive right into it. Can you tell the audience who isn't familiar, um, what is Carve? Sure. So we're a car sharing platform where dealerships, car dealerships can put unused inventory, vehicles that are basically just sitting on their lot. Uh, they can take those cars and then rent them out for short term. Uh, so, you know, if you're a dealership and you have 40 cars sitting on your lot, instead of just letting them sit there and depreciate, you can now put them onto the platform and earn money by renting them out to people that live in San Francisco. Okay, so this is kind of like in the realm lightly of real estate, but not real estate like a house, real estate like a car and making sure you're getting use out of your assets. So I have a couple questions on the car dealership side. So let's say I have a car dealership and I, I have a Hyundai car dealership. So you're saying, let's say I have a, you know, a Hyundai Elantra that's been sitting in the lot for longer than I want it to be. I can just rent that out for someone to drive. And then when they're done, it's just back on the lot ready to sell. Or how does that, how does it work for a dealer? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. Yeah. I mean, we're enabling dealerships basically to do what rental car companies have been doing for the past 50 years. They have these great relationships with OEMs and they also have great relationships with their customers. So yeah, they have a Hyundai Elantra that someone has traded in and it's been sitting on their lot. And for some, for one reason or another, maybe it's the season the car is not selling. And so instead of kind of waiting it out until the market picks up or uh, just, you know, moving it to another dealership by selling it at auction, they would put the car on our website and they would earn rental revenue from people who wanted to drive that car for whatever reason. Maybe it's a weekend away or uh, commute, you know, down to the South Bay from San Francisco. Um, for whatever reason, uh, people that need access to cars are kind of paired off with these cars that dealerships have but aren't necessarily selling. Uh, and the rental revenues not only offset the depreciation, but in many cases, actually earn in 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 all cases actually earn the dealerships more money uh, than they would earn just sitting there, but also in many cases earn the dealerships more money than they would just by selling the car outright. Because whereas before they would take the car, they would buy the car, they would sell it, and then they would make the profit, the difference between what they bought it for and what they're selling it for. Now they're buying the car, they're earning a carry, they're earning the revenue by renting it out and then they're still selling it for a profit um and the depreciation is is offset and then some by the rental revenue they're making 
in between the purchase on the um, and the disposition of the car. So then, do you mainly target dealerships that sell used cars? Because wouldn't if if I was a dealership selling uh, Hyundai's, like new Hyundai's, and I had some Hyundai's that weren't being sold, and I wanted to put them on carb, then they're being driven, so then they're used. Do you market it to used dealerships, or am I am I misunderstanding an element? Yeah, so that's definitely definitely because of the depreciation schedule of a used car. It's going to be easier to get over that hurdle with a used dealership, right? Because if someone puts a thousand miles on a car that already had twenty thousand miles on it, the value of that car is not really affected too much, and you know the rental revenue is much, much, much higher than the car would uh, lose in value. Um, that said, plenty of new car dealerships have used cars on the lots, either because of customer trade-ins from old leases or because they bought them at auction. Um, and more and more new car dealerships are selling used cars because the profits on them are actually much more appealing. And so I wouldn't say we, 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 I wouldn't, you know, think about dealerships in terms of purely new and used because at this point, you know, it's, they sell such a mix. Uh, on the other hand, in certain cases, it does make sense to put new cars on the platform as well, if you're planning to keep the cars on the platform for a longer period of time. So if you have a brand new Hyundai Elantra that you that the dealership bought from the manufacturer, let's say is worth $18,000, the second they put it on our platform and someone drives it, that value might dip within the first thousand miles, $2,000. But they're only earning uh, you know, $1,000 in that month. So that wouldn't be worth it. However, the depreciation kind of levels out. It doesn't, uh, doesn't increase as steeply, right? And so if you keep it on there for three months, for four months, at that point, by the fourth month, you're earning uh, well over, around month three, month two and a half, you have offset the initial depreciation on the car with the rental revenue. And after that, you're really earning much more than the car is depreciating. So new cars make sense for longer for, for longer periods of time. Used cars make sense really for however long a dealer wants to put the car on. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm kind of interested interested to learn about how you get a dealership who is a the, I, I would consider them a little bit more of a dinosaur industry than when compared to like tech. Um, and I, I could be wrong, you know about this way more than I do. But like how do you get a, a standard old dealership to try this out? So I'm, I'm almost curious to hear about the sales process if you're open to sharing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's totally true that dealerships are typically, uh, certainly compared to tech, more averse to tech. Um, but I think fundamentally, like when you have a product that you're trying to sell to a dealer, to a, to a, let's call it a legacy industry. If the need is there, it, like if there's a, if there's a high enough need, it doesn't matter how averse the individual is to technology, right? Like as long as you're using it to enable some kind of solution for the problem. So in dealerships case, you have this situation where car sales are decreasing and 
dealerships might be by and large averse to um, changing how they do things. And so you need to consider that and create a solution that fits in with the existing workflow, which I think is actually the case for a lot of non-legacy in, uh, industries as well. But at the same time, you have a really great opportunity here because if the choice is between adopting this new technology and dying or you know, just enduring decreasing sales month over month, well then every single time they're gonna pick new tech, right? Um, and so I think probably that that, you know, when it comes to things that will just like optimize the, the, the business, um, maybe that's, that's a harder sell because the effort required for them to adopt it is probably not worth the, the marginal benefit. But when you're dealing with an existential threat, then you have a lot more latitude in terms of in terms of who's willing to adopt this thing. Yeah, that that makes a lot more sense. And and I also feel like you're literally showing them the money like hey, you have assets on your lot that that you're you're not making money on, so let's make that a little more liquid for you. It kind of it kind of makes sense to me. So how how, right. how did how did you get this idea or what was a little bit of the inspiration for wanting to start Carve? And I'm also curious, like, uh, I'd love to hear the backstory behind the name. Uh, I like the name Carve. It's fun. How'd you get the name? Sure, sure. So the, me, and, me and my co-founder, Sam, we've known each other since freshman year of college. And we both moved to big urban areas afterward and gave up our cars because things like Uber and public transit sufficed for most of the journeys that we wanted to take. But Sam and I were both kind of outdoors people. We like to explore. And there's this whole, there's this whole universe of journeys where a drive-it-yourself car, so to speak, is required. And the existing options, you know, not to name names, really didn't didn't work for us, either because they were inconvenient or inconsistent. That is to say, sometimes the cars were really nice, sometimes they were not, um, or just too expensive. And so we knew from the demand side, there was a need for the kind of one to five day rental uh, uh, vehicle. From the supply side, which I think is really kind of the innovation, both me and Sam are from the Midwest and, you know, car dealerships are just something we naturally think of. You know, if you, if you drove, if you drove 10 miles in any direction from our ch childhood homes, you know, you would see, you would see like dozens of these lots filled with cars. And so it was one of kind of the first, the first supply pools that came to mind. And we began speaking with car dealerships. Again, you know, we just had, contact through family and friends and begun to understand some of their issues, begun to understand kind of the shape of, of this problem that's emerging and realized that there's an opportunity here uh, that exists both because of the demand for, you know, short-term car rentals and, you know, because of this trend of young people moving into cities and giving up cars, but still wanting to be able to 
escape for a weekend and because of slumping, you know, car sales after, after several years of, of really great growth. And so we thought, you know, if at the same time we can kind of make up for the shrinking pie that dealers are having to deal with in terms of uh, car sales revenue by giving them an opportunity for more service-oriented rental revenue, and we can provide a user experience that really blows the existing options out of the water, both in terms of pickup and drop-off and in terms of vehicle quality and customer service, then, uh, you know, then, then we've got a company here. And so I was working at Bridgewater Associates in Connecticut, which is a hedge fund. And Sam was at a PhD program at the University of Chicago in computer science. And I think we were both, we were both looking for something new. And so we, we came together and this is what we came up with. And, you know, in terms of the name, I think there's really like two main rules for a name. Like, you know, as important as people say names are, I think the two big things are that someone can spell it back to you and that you can get the dot com. Uh, so we don't have the dot com, actually, but Carve is pretty easy to spell back. And so and we'll eventually get the dot com. And so, you know, we went with Carve because, first of all, we're both big skiers and we you know want people to think about all these great kind of ski holidays they can go on when they, when they, when they uh, use this service. And also because we're kind of, uh, we're kind of slicing up the rental industry. We're getting rid of, you know, like balance, balance sheet heavy kind of inefficiencies that exist. And we're putting these uh, new, these, these idle assets to work. Um, and in doing so, you know, giving people vehicles more cheaply and uh, and and more and more efficiently than was on offer before. So it's the 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 big battle to get the dot com of of the name of the company that you want. I feel like I, w- I wonder, like one one day there's gonna be. I feel like in a decade they're just all gonna be gone, you know. And it's just like there's gonna be a, there's gonna be a new Com, but not like an AI or IO. There's going to be an agreed upon kind of new dot com that is just going to be be the power play, and then it's going to be fresh real estate for everyone. Oh, yeah. to like a, a big, and everyone's going to buy all these domains. Domains actually. Interesting. Oh yeah. You know? Did you know that there's, yeah. a, there's an industry, there's a market of people that just buy up domains before they get hot, then they sell. Oh yeah. Did you know that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Domain resellers. Yeah. I mean, I had a cousin who, you know, super nerd got a website. He has a, basically a three letter name, got his URL domain in, in the 90, early nineties. And it's now worth several hundred thousand dollars. And there are people that have been doing this since the nineties and who accumulate these portfolios. I mean, it's like anything else, right? It's like sneaker resellers or like, these are hot commodities, you know, and you can, I mean, I think Facebook paid, in the millions for fb.com from the from the u.s like farmers bureau association or something like this uh recently so i guess like if you spread out your bets with enough you know like short urls like the payday can be probably pretty huge 
have you are you familiar with the the biggest uh the biggest this isn't actually a, a domain this is a twitter handle but it, it, i i thought about it when you were talking about it um the biggest twitter handle holdup is slack there is a guy who has the the twitter handle slack and slack oh, i'm hilarious. sure has offered him millions of dollars and the guy isn't budging i think it's the funniest thing on the internet happening in 2019 <laughs> that's amazing i i i sympathize with that guy like we get pushed around too much by big tech like keep 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 slack you know like you know don't uh don't budge on that one yeah 100 percent. well cool so so you're working on carve and uh, uh, do you mind sharing? Uh, you actually might have just mentioned it, but but I might have missed it. How long have you been actively working on on Carve, and 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 what have you learned so far since you started about the market, about the product, about the space? I'd love to le- hear some learnings so far. Yeah, I think I think so. First of all, we've been working on it since uh, February of 2019. So you know very young i think the there are some industry specific learnings which probably won't be that interesting to a lot of your listeners but but there's like there are a few kind of big ones i think that are counterintuitive that at least were counterintuitive to me when i learned them uh, about the about the kind of process of selling to these big legacy players the first one is the the relatively obvious networks are super duper important and when it comes to selling especially with with like big big players uh, like car dealership groups um the kind of first customer you get is going to be 10 times harder to acquire if you make them happy than the second and third customer because it's a really small community and that is like when it when you're thinking about when we were thinking about what to build and for who that's a super valuable kind of customer base because the effort that you need because first of all they're extremely demanding and so you're forced to iterate fast on the product i think it's part of the reason so many people build companies, build startups specifically geared at startups because they're a highly demanding customer. But then secondly, it's a tight-knit community. And so if you do well, CAC is not, is not gonna skyrocket as you try to grow. It's actually gonna decrease because it's so close, because your, your customers all know each other. Um, and so kind of, Thinking that each that like the process to sell uh, to get a dealership was going to be the same on the tenth dealership as it was on the first, or even on the second as it was on the first, that turned out to be completely wrong. It's a totally different sales process. It's much more about social proof and intros. Um, the other big thing I think is that we've it's it's really easy 
to get someone to use a product if it's free or subsidized, like, or, you know, someone else is paying for it, like an, like an Uber. Like, and I think early on, a lot of people under, a lot of founders, and we did as well, underpriced their product and make the mistake of thinking that early adopters are price sensitive. When in fact, that kind of turns out not to be the case. Like early adopters by and large are not price sensitive and getting, and getting, you know, but beyond that, making people pay for the product is also a part of like the validation process, right? Like if, if you can't get people to use your product by, you know, when you ask them to like five or 10 bucks a month, then that reflects on what you've built, right? And fooling, you know, ourselves into thinking that we have something really great because active daily users has doubled every day or every week for the past two months um, is great and it feels really good. You know, and you can talk about how down the line you're going to monetize it. You have this great community of users. But like at the end of the day, none of those things mean anything if they're all going to leave once you've once you've jacked up, you know, prices because you need to jack up prices to pay for the product. And I'm not talking about, you know, free trials, which which makes, you know, which makes sense in a lot of cases. Um, you know, I'm talking about like you know, giving stuff away for free to get to get, you know, users on board. Um and so, yeah, and so that that was that was pretty interesting to me that like you don't necessarily need to beat everyone on price. You don't necessarily need to um, you know, monthly active users, daily active users, not necessarily the most important um, metric. And, you know, it's, it's way more important to build something with 100 users where the users love you so much they're willing to pay for it than, you know, giving something away to 10,000 users who um, will leave you if you if you jack up prices, because there are a lot of consequences to, to building a product like that, that people aren't, that people don't really care about. And ultimately charging for something is a way to validate whether people care about, you know, wh what you're building. So that's another learning that, that is hit, that has hit us pretty hard. Um, and is something that I'm going to take with me, you know, no matter kind of, no matter the thing that we're building. Um, I think the last thing is the sort of, um, cognitive dissonance it takes to be a founder as well was pretty interesting to me. The fact that you have to have high conviction views that are loosely held, kind of paradoxical. How can you, how can you feel very strongly about something if, you know, if it's not tightly held? Um, and I think one of the hardest things is putting your heart and soul into something and then having the wisdom to know as the data points come in whether or not what you're doing is working. Because oftentimes you get caught in this trap where by the time you know whether or not something is a business, something's a good business, you've 
sunk too much time in to admit that and you fall prey to, you know, a sunk cost fallacy. Um, but people who can do that thing, people who can look, turn, kind of look dispassionately at something and make a really rational decision on whether to move forward or tweak the product or change it all together. And then at the same time, kind of turn that off and think kind of exuberantly and you know, I don't want to say irrationally, but not in that those kind of dispassionate terms when it suits them, when they're talking to customers, when they're talking to 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 VCs, like those like those are the best those are the best quality. Those are the best founders and it like really serves it really serves the company well when you can do that. That's that's the other thing that I think is it's a skill like anything else that is really hard to cultivate. Really, really important though. Um, so I don't know, those, those are kind of three high, higher level things. Yeah, those are all good learnings. And I think they're relatable for people in their different, uh, stages of where they're at on their entrepreneurial journey. Um, something I'm curious about is to know what is the next decade or two look like for Carve? What kind of, wh what direction are you rowing in and what's the product vision that you can share? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen a huge amount of innovation in the mobility sector over the past 10 years. We saw the first wave, Uber and Lyft and um, the ride hailing revolution. And now we're seeing, although it's beginning to kind of, the exuberance is beginning to taper off a little bit in micro mobility. And I think we're going to see those trends sticking around because you have this secular trend of people between the ages of 25 and 40 staying in cities or moving to cities and opting not to own cars um, as opposed to, you know, 20 or 30 years ago when they would have moved to suburbs and owned cars. And so I think you're going to see those stay. But I think there's a part of mobility that's sort of been overlooked that hasn't yet really um, that hasn't yet really been innovated on. And that's, you, I guess you could call it like macro mobility, which is the kind of drive it yourself journeys that people in, in cities want to take. Those are the kind of one to five day rentals, mostly focused around the weekends. Um, and those those journeys, those are best suited for, uh, you know, the, for, for, for a car rental. And so I think in kind of the ecosystem of mobility, we are trying to carve out our place in, in that, um, in kind of like that, that area. Um, and so what that means is we need to, create something that is highly productized and highly focused towards the activities or, you know, building a product uh, that is conducive to the kind of activities that people are using our cars for. We need to kind of move away from the highly commoditized car rental uh, modalities that exist right now at airports where you don't get to choose which car you get. You really, and, and largely, you know, users don't really care. They just need something to get them from point A to point B. 
and then move towards a kind of highly specific, um, uh, you know, cars and experiences uh, or and cars that are suited for the experiences that, that, that this generation like wants to have on weekends or, you know, over holidays and things like that. So we're really working on um, crafting both a pickup and drop off, but also in-car experience that is focused uh, to best serve um, group group trips because we think those are really important, and they're also it's also a great thing to do just for uh, in terms of customer acquisition costs um, and kind of adventure trips as opposed to utility. Um, you know, so getting more kind of camper vans, some SUVs, um, convertibles, things that people use um, for kind of the leisure or adventure trips as well. Um, and we think that's going to be a really increasingly important part of the of the travel uh, of the travel market in the next ten to twenty years. Um, so, yeah. So I'd say that's the niche we're kind of trying to carve out for ourselves. And it, it, it's a problem that we're solving for a relatively small group of people, right? Just, you know, mostly tech people right now in San Francisco, but it sits within this much larger trend. And so for that reason, it's, I think, a really great opportunity and it's going to be really big. That's awesome to hear kind of your vision and the direction that you're rowing in uh, my last question for you before we wrap up is, you know, you're you're starting a company, you're solving a problem, you're you're in market, and you're doing everything a lot of people that are listening want to do. But uh, you know, they want to solve a problem, they want to build a product, they want to start a company, but they don't necessarily know the best first step on how to do that. What tips or advice would you give uh, some of the listeners, uh, if they wanted to start their own company, but don't know the first steps on how to do it. Yeah, that's an awesome question. Um, I think, I think the enemy of starting a company is perfectionism, like just beginning is the hardest, is the hardest possible thing. Uh, to do, I think in the whole process, going from idea to like starting is a real is is by far the hardest uh, thing to do. And so I think for people who have an idea but don't have, um, but haven't yet begun, it's important to think about what the what the smallest amount of work you could do. Uh, and still create a product that resembles the thing you want to build, right? It's about planning the MVP, the minimally viable product. Um, and I think once you do that, once you say, okay, I want to start uh, a you know, virtual reality company. Um, okay, so what's the minimum I can do to, to start that? Well, I'm going to make a pair of VR goggles out of, uh, all I need is, you know, two cardboard uh, rolls of toilet paper and uh, some duct tape and, uh, you know, two three-inch LCD screens and, uh, you know, a Raspberry Pi. And then kind of you break that into uh, smaller parts. The whole thing, like starting it actually becomes manageable as opposed to saying, I'd, because I think a lot of the times, 
when we a lot of the time when we have these big ideas we have an understanding of where we want to go but the thing that stops us from going there is that the interim steps are super hazy and it makes sense that that's the case because thinking about the 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 because we know what it looks like to be super to have a super successful company right like any consumer product those super successful companies are the ones that we deal with on a daily basis and by and large most people don't see kind of the steps in the middle when things were imperfect when things were 80 percent broken that it took to get there so fleshing out at a very very low level like small steps exactly how to get from idea to minimum viable product that's extremely important like literally a checklist one two three four five where you understand what every single action item is and can do them uh, in a reasonable time frame i think the other thing is figuring out whether there's a market for your thing um so you have the minimum viable product you don't really actually need a minimum viable product to figure out whether there's a market for your thing but it helps you have it like see if you can get people to pay for it um you know like if you were trying to start uber your minimum viable product would be you know a really bare bones app with a couple of drivers on it um talk to kids around college campuses and see if they were willing to uh you know use the app to see if they were willing to actually you know pay for for this service that you're providing and if they're not then again like that's a reflection on the product you built that it needs to be that it needs to be better uh you know in any number of ways in order to kind of make it market viable um and i think when it comes to finding users for the product i mean this is age old advice like don't try and solve some huge problem because generally speaking if it was a huge problem if, if you're like if, if something was a huge problem and you can solve it then someone would have done it a while ago more likely you you have there there are a bunch of small problems that have yet to be solved and you have insights into solving that and once you've solved that there are kind of adjacent problems that become apparent that you can also move into um and so you know if your idea is to um yeah i don't know if your idea is to like you know in 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 to take an example from public health you know cure malaria better to find something that you know is affects a very very small number of people uh and that you can figure out and then use the learnings from that if possible to solve the bigger problem because typically that's how you know startups can grow they focus on a very small number of users and then they kind of move on from there um and so yeah so i guess so i guess mvp what it takes to get to mvp mapping that out super carefully going about it really methodically uh figuring out each step in granular detail testing it in the market and the best way to validate that is whether people will pay for it and like you'll know if 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 people want what you're building like you'll have a pretty immediate idea people will get excited about it people will try and give you their money for it and if it's not and and if and if that's not the case 
then don't be resistant to change the product or go to a new idea. Um, don't fall prey to the sunk cost fallacy where you've put a lot of time into getting to MVP, but no one wants what you've built. Like that's fine. There's probably something that you can still do that won't, you know, mean you have to throw out all this work you've done that people will actually want. And sometimes there isn't, but most of the time it's the case that you just need to change it a little bit. Um, and the process for that is talking to customers. Um, yeah. So the last thing I would say is once you have MVP and you've given it to people and you should do that as quickly as possible, but once you've done that, don't get into the trap of just putting your head down and trying to create something that you think people want because you don't know what people want. And so talking to people, which in many ways is much harder than just putting your head down and working towards some vision that you have, talking to people and figuring out what they want, figuring out what advice of theirs to take and what advice of theirs not to take. And that's a whole other discussion is the most important thing. And then after, at that point, executing on that feedback and then doing the whole process over and over and over again, like really, you know, an unlimited number of times until you have a product that people use and are super happy with. Um, so yeah, biggest barrier to starting perfectionism. So just start planning out what an MVP looks like and do it and then get to that MVP as quickly as possible, like a week and then give it to people. And then once you've given it to people, talk to them and see what they think of it and right. change it. Right. So that's, that's basically it. Yeah, that is fantastic advice and a very practical roadmap for anyone wanting to start their own company. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I, I appreciate it. I learned a ton, especially about an industry I didn't know much about beforehand. And uh, yeah, just appreciate you coming on. Yeah, it's a pleasure being on that.